Thanks. Sorry, if you need a handout, they're up the front table there as you come in the door. But I'll open up with prayer, and we'll get started. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you that we can gather together in peace and learn your word. We do pray as we look at this heresy regarding the serpent's seed that we would have clarity with the scriptures, that we would understand the gospel even greater, that we would see that salvation is not by our genetics but by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. I pray that you would, anybody who's listening, anybody who's doubting, that you would assure them of that through the scriptures. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I'm doing something a little unusual. We're handling a heresy that had come up in our circles in a Bible study. Now, it's not something that we teach at Gospel of Grace, obviously, but it's something that had come up in one of the Bible studies. And so I want to handle this issue of a teaching called the serpent seed. And we'll talk about where this came from. But what we're going to do is we're going to learn, at the end of the day, salvation is not by our genetics. Our genetics don't matter at all for salvation. But we're going to see that Jesus Christ's genetics did because it was by promise in the scriptures that he was to come from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah, and from David. So you'll learn today Jesus Christ's genetic lineage mattered, but ours doesn't matter at all before God. What matters is whether or not one has faith in the Messiah. That's what we're going to learn. And so my prayer is as we unpack this heresy, and Bob has some interesting uh, understanding of how this heresy is affecting people today widely in the church. I'm not talking about here necessarily a gospel of grace, but in our wider community, and it's something that we have to be aware of. So let's begin. Let me explain what the serpent seed doctrine is, and I'll begin by talking about William Branham. Oops, sorry. That's not you. I don't, I'm, I'm keep arguing. Okay, I'll keep going. William Branham was actually a false teacher that Bob had warned me about uh, just recently because he was teaching the serpent seed doctrine back in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, let me talk a little bit about William Branham. He was born in 1909. He actually died in 1965 in a car accident, uh, and so he didn't live his full life. But some of the doctrines he taught, he was a heretic. He taught something called modalistic monarchianism. Now, what is modalistic monarchianism? Monarch is king. Think of the mode means it just changes mode. So what he believed is that God is just one, and there's no one God in three persons. There's one God in one person. And so sometimes God the Father has the Father costume on, but then he'll take that off and he'll put the Son costume on. So he's changing modes, the monarch. That's why it's called modalistic monarchianism. Is that clear? So he believed that there's one God in one person, so he denied the Trinity. All right? Um, he also taught something called annihilationism, that when you die, if you're an unbeliever, you don't go to Hades and then hell under the wrath of God forevermore, as the scriptures clearly teach. But instead, he taught that a human being who's an unbeliever will cease to exist. That's also heretical. He taught something called dual atonement. A dual atonement is the idea that, yes, Jesus died as a propitious atonement for your sins, but he also died so that you could have healing here and now. So if you have a broken foot, you don't have to have that broken foot because you've had the atonement. Okay, the atonement should heal you here and now, not just unto eternity. So again, a misreading of Scripture. But the big issue was the serpent seed doctrine. So let me read to you from William Branham, and you're going to see the basic idea of this heresy that we're covering today. Here's the idea. Listen to what William Branham wrote. And by the way, you can find this right from his website. 
It's dedicated to his, to his honor, WilliamBranham.com. He said this, he said, quote, He, okay, that would be, again, the serpent, seduced her, and by her did Satan have a child vicariously. Cain bore the full spiritual characteristics of Satan and the animalistic, and he says sensual and fleshly, characteristic of the serpent. So the claim in this heresy is not that Eve sinned by eating the forbidden fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but rather she sinned by having a physical relationship with the serpent in the garden. And because that happened, this teaching says that there's a genetic group, a genetic lineage of people who are damned and cannot be saved. And as I'm going to show you, this leads to all sorts of mischief, both in Branham's day and also in our day, about people saying, well, that group is the direct lineage of the serpent, or that group, or that group. In fact, William Branham, he didn't like people who were scientists and teachers and anyone who had an education. He considered them as a genetic outflow of the serpent. That's what he claimed. So they couldn't be saved. Why? Because they must have been genetically linked to the serpent. Because to him, scientists were ruining the society in the 1950s. That was the idea. So in the serpent seed doctrine, according to this teaching, Eve's true sin was not eating fruit of the forbidden tree, but having physical relations with the serpent. This physical union led to Cain and physical descendants that are linked to the serpent genetically. What I'm going to show you today is our issue when it comes to being saved or unsaved is not a genetic issue. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're female or male. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free. What matters is if you have faith in Christ. So if you have faith in Christ, you are linked to the Messiah. And it's not by genetics. But if you have unbelief, you are linked to the serpent in corporate solidarity. So you're going to be in solidarity at the end of the day, either with Satan by unbelief or by Christ through belief or faith. That's the real issue. And I'll prove that to you biblically as we proceed. Number three, Branham's version maintained that, again, scientists, educators, and criminals in the modern era were part of this genetic lineage. Again, he saw those people as wrecking our culture, quote-unquote, back in the 1950s. And so that was what he's taught. But listen to this. I want to read to you something that I just found on the Internet of people who believe in the serpent seed doctrine And it comes from a website called travisagnew.org. The reason I want to read to you this... I'm sorry, Bob. I want to read this to you because I want you to understand how this affects people. When they get into the Serpent Seed Doctrine, many people use it for racist uh, ideology that they have. They don't like a certain group, and they use the Serpent Seed Doctrine to try to say that group came from the Serpent Seed. They're genetically linked to the serpent in the garden. Now, anybody who holds to the serpent seed doctrine, I'm not saying they all are racist, but I'm saying that many racists do use this. Listen to this Travis Agnew. He's just a believer. He has a blog site, and he got this email. This is in 2015. This, this emailer said this. He said, quote, I tried calling you Sunday at church. Are you a serpent seed preacher? Me and my friend are looking for churches around here that preach the serpent seed. Well, this man named Travis Agnew, he responds. He says, I'm not sure where all of this is heading. So he said, I asked him to clarify. So the man responded, well, what happened in the Garden of Eden? Do you believe in one or two bloodlines? And you do use the Hebrew translation to help you study, right? Well, he goes on. He says, I believe that Satan is Cain 
is Cain's father and God is Abel's father. And he says that the Hebrew tells us that there's a translation. Excuse me, the Hebrew translation tells us he's not a very good writer. (laughs) Tells us that there's two bloodlines. And he says blacks, Jews, and others are part of this lineage. So do you see how evil this is? This, This whole doctrine that you have a genetic lineage who comes from the serpent can be used by racists, those who hate Jews, those who hate some genetic group, to try to say, well, they're just the child of Satan through the serpent. So that's why it's a big issue. And Bob, do you want to tell people what you've heard as well? I think it's a good time to bring that up now, why this is a bigger issue than we realize in the church at large in America. Well, um, I think Jessica will be down here, but I asked her to do some research. Yeah. I, I don't have Facebook and I don't have um, social media, so I don't know where everything's being uh, promulgated. Right. But she sent some links, and I read them. Ken Silva had a great, great writing about that in 2012. 2012. And then he laid it all out there. Okay. And it was very good. Uh, again, more racism, false teaching yeah. coming from this sort of doctrine. Right. And then there's a new version of it called Nephilim eschatology. Oh, boy. And that's what... Um, Silva was writing about in that on his apprising ministry. He's he's with the Lord now. Yeah, but he's somebody I knew and talked with a, lo- a lot. That was from 2012. But then there were other links. And when Jessica, if she gets down here, she'll t- she sent them to me. Yeah. Your internet wasn't working, so Eric didn't get them. Right. But people that we've known and heard are pr- promoting this now. Yeah. And this one fellow. I watched the video he has on his Facebook page. Yeah. And he's claiming that uh, if someone gets the COVID vaccine, they're infused with the serpent seed and that's going to lead to Antichrist and that you're damned and no cannot what. be saved. Wow. But then he doesn't say it absolutely. He just speculates. Maybe. <laughs> okay, but... So then you got deniability. Right. And so I read that, and I sent it to Eric, and, but he, his internet was down. Yeah. And here's what I've been experiencing lately, if you don't mind me saying yeah, this. Yeah, amen. I'm getting phone calls from people I've known since the 70s and worked with, worshipped with, and people are afraid. They're feeling hopeless. They're, they're afraid that they're going to die, and maybe they, it's their own fault they did something wrong. Uh, maybe the demons are getting me. Maybe I missed something. Maybe there's something I need to know that I didn't know. Maybe I prayed wrong. Uh, and I've seen this instability going back to the 70s yeah. when I was in groups like that. Yeah. And I got out because of the instability. And I mentioned this in my sermon last week. Stability comes by faith in Christ, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, grace alone, all the solos. But if somebody says if you, stability comes from what shot you got or didn't get. Right. And then starts sending this all over the Internet on Facebook. Yeah. And then puts in, well, maybe. Right. Well, how does maybe give you hope? Right. (laughs) 
The promises of God are sure. They're certain. They're infallible. God cannot lie. Maybe he doesn't give me any hope. Exactly. But it gives the false preacher deniability. That's right. And it's wicked. And so I'm still alive by God's grace after, you know, everything that I've been through. And uh, they're still here, so I'm going to keep preaching. Amen. But the reason I'm going back to what I saw happen in the 70s is that if you do specious, confusing conspiracy theories, maybe this might be, this could be, this might, but who knows. Right. And then some people take it seriously, and then when you get older and you don't have the strength, emotional uh, uh, stability, or maybe you're just not able to do what you used to do, you just become terrified. Wow. Afraid to go out of the house. Afraid to talk to anybody. Afraid that you lost your salvation. Afraid that while you're on your deathbed, now I have no hope. What did I do wrong? I mentioned this last Sunday. And that partly drove the group I was with, uh, which became Twin City Fellowship on 24th and Nicollet. Right. To scripture. Yeah. Amen. That's what we need. And how can the elderly saints who love Jesus be on their deathbed because they're 90 years old? Right. And there's no hope. Yeah, amen. What did I do wrong? Where do we gain our hope? Please think about it. Where do we gain our hope? From the scriptures. Are the promises of God maybe? Right, right. Or are they sure and certain? Yeah. And I'm so, uh, my my heart goes out to people. I had a really long phone call the other day from someone I worked with fixing cars. Oh, yeah. In uh, like 1980, 81, whatever. Back when I was preaching for free and fixing cars for free. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he was just so shook up and fearful and asking for help. And what, what did I do wrong? And I've been to this group, and then that didn't work. And I went to this group, and that didn't work. And now maybe I'm going to the wrong place. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to believe. I sent him a bunch of scriptures. Yeah. And here's another one. Don't let anyone take away your hope and your confidence Amen. In, in what God has provided. Amen. If we have access to the throne of grace, is that something or nothing? We have the promises of God. Is that something or nothing? Amen. We have Christ. Is that something or nothing? So then I started following these links that are out there. Yeah. And the, the racism, the, yeah. it can either be anti-Semitism or, in America, hatred of either white people or black people or whoever yeah. they are, depending yeah. on your group. And I thought, I, I remember Eric had mentioned last week, in Adam, all die. Amen. It doesn't say in, in Satan, Cain died. That's right. And so Bobby genetics Green. will get you dead. Exactly. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. No, it makes up a good point. That's another reason why I think this is an important doctrine to look at now is because genetics are a big issue in America. What you need to see as a Christian is that your genetics don't impress God at all. All right? Now, you and I, again, should be impressed with the genetics of Christ, as it were, because God providentially 
supernaturally made sure that he came from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. Christ's genetics matter. Ours don't. And that's something we need to know. Yes, Norm. Do we know what their objective is in preaching this type of thing? Is there a motive? Are they looking for people to send them money? Usually there's something behind it. Yeah, you know, Satan is working overtime to deceive the saints into not having the hope that Bob talked about. You know, John said in 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have everlasting life. And it's interesting, the false teachers always want to dangle you over something that you need to do or not do so that they become the lawgiver and you have to listen to them and therefore they're the ones who kind of pull the strings on us being the puppets. But what we have to say is nonsense to that. Salvation's by faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. And our solidarity is, I'm going to show you, I think we're going to have a lot greater clarity today on how we're connected to Jesus Christ, what the real issues are. It's by faith. And you're going to see that again today. And so it's going to be a refreshment of the, the gospel itself. So let's look at another heresy. Oh, I'm sorry, Scott. I, what you're talking about is the antidote to the tyranny of fear. Yeah, amen. Exactly. Well said. It is. It's the anecdote to the tyranny of fear. Absolutely. That's what the scriptures provide. So that by the encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope, as Paul said in, in Romans. Amen. So let's look at Arnold Murray. How many in here have ever heard of the Shepherd's Conference or Shepherd's Chapel, I should say? Not the Shepherd's Conference. The Shepherd's Conference by John MacArthur is good. The Shepherd's Chapel, though, was something that was done by Arnold Murray. This is his organization. Listen to what he taught. He taught, by the way, that there was no such thing as the rapture. If you believed in the rapture doctrine, you were damned. That's what he taught despite 1 Thessalonians 4.16 clearly teaching the rapture. He taught the Christian identity movement where the true descendants of Israel were those who were British. So it was the British who are from the 12 tribes and no one else. That seems a little eccentric. When I think of Prince Charles and King David, I don't see the connection, but anyway, that's just an aside, right? Uh, Modalism. He believed in modalism too. He denied the Trinity, but he believed in the serpent seed doctrine. Listen to what he said. Arnold Murray, when you look for the in-depth meaning of men as trees walking, you are able to see that Christ wants us to understand there are plantings of God and plantings of the devil. The plantings of that wicked one began in the Garden of Eden and with the conception of Cain and followed down through his progeny, the Kenites. Notice the key teaching that Arnold Murray is teaching here is that Cain was genetically a child of Satan. What I'm going to prove to you is that is not true. That is something that you see in common with all the serpent seed teachers is that Cain's problem was genetically he was the offspring of Eve and her relationship physically with the serpent. But what we're going to learn is a clear reading of Genesis chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 proves that that's not the case. That is indeed not the case. And this isn't hard. So it's almost embarrassing. I'm going to be pointing out the very obvious to you. But nonetheless, that's why I get paid the big bucks. Okay, so we'll keep going. So let's talk about what was Eve's sin. Here's the debate. Was Eve's sin having a physical relationship with the serpent? Or was it that she disobeyed the command of God and ate of the forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, we're going to see it was the latter. But let's dig into the exegesis. Genesis 3, 1 through 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? 
The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Now, the first thing I want to handle is we want to answer the question, Who is the serpent? Let me pull up my pointer. We want to qualify who is the serpent. Now, I believe the serpent was Satan, a manifestation of Satan himself in the garden. Now, what evidence would I have in the scriptures for that? Well, turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 2. And by the way, as you're turning to Revelation 20, 1 through 2, there are also Old Testament references to this that seem to link the serpent to Satan himself. You'll see this in like Isaiah 27. Isaiah 27, 1 in particular. But turn your Bibles to Revelation 20, verses 1 through 2. Revelation 20, 1 through 2. Notice here, this is all about the millennial kingdom. So remember, when Christ comes at the end of the 70th week of Daniel, at the end of the seven years, he destroys the enemies that are surrounding Jerusalem, and he's going to send Satan in the lake of fire. Excuse me, not the lake of fire, but he binds him for a thousand years. Then later, after the, at the white throne judgment, he's also thrown in the lake of fire. So here, he's going to be bound for a thousand years. Notice Revelation 20, 1 through 2. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. In verse 2 it says, And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Notice the reference, the serpent of old. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is linking us to the serpent in the garden, I believe. That's the serpent of antiquity that I think is probably in his mind, especially in light of the fact that John has so many references to the Old Testament. In fact, Revelation is really built off of the Old Testament. Okay, so the serpent of old is, in fact, the devil and Satan. And again, you'll see in Isaiah 27, 1, the same idea, that the Lord in the day of the Lord is going to punish Leviathan, that fleeing serpent. So Satan apparently used the serpent and did so for his purposes. And remember, we know from passages like 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that Satan can masquerade even as an angel of light. So Satan is a powerful being. He can use different means to deceive people. And he did so here in the garden. Now, notice the temptation. The temptation here in red, indeed, this is the serpent saying, this is Satan, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? In other words, notice how he blows out of proportion God's prohibition. The prohibition was that you can't eat of one tree. But Satan says, well, this is outrageous. He's telling you you can't eat of all the trees? Well, of course, he didn't say that, and Eve corrects him. Eve got this right. She's doing so good at this point in the debate, theologically, right? She says, no, we can eat of all the trees, but from the one tree in the middle, you shall not eat or you will die. Okay, now, what's the claim by the serpent seed proponents? Well, their claim is that this term eating, does everyone see the term eat? It comes from akal in Hebrew. Akal is eat. Well, they try to claim that that is a euphemism for a physical sexual relationship between Eve and between the serpent. The problem, now, does everyone know what a euphemism is? A euphemism is is where you use another term or phrase to soften the blow of another term or phrase. So, for example, instead of saying someone died, we may say they passed away. It softens the blow. Okay, well, people are claiming these serpent seed teachers 
that the phrase eat is a euphemism for a sexual relationship between the serpent and Eve. What's the problem with that? We're given no contextual clue in the text that there's a euphemism intended. Let me give you an example of where a euphemism was intended and the context tells us. Turn your Bibles to John 11. I want you to see a euphemism as Christ used it and why you know it was a euphemism. Turn your Bibles to John 11, verses 11 through 15. So what we're learning here is how to discern a euphemism when one is intended from when a euphemism is not intended. Okay, and the context tells you. So notice here in John 11, verses 11 through 15. Now remember, this is where Lazarus had died. But Jesus uses the euphemism to soften the blow that he had fallen asleep. And the disciples don't understand his euphemism. And finally, he has to tell them plainly, he's dead. <laughs> but let's look at the context. John 11, 11 through 15. Verse 11, it says, This he said, and after that, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Does everyone see fallen asleep? There's the euphemism. But I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. Well, verse 12, the disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. So stop there. They think, well, it means he's got a bad flu. He's just got to sleep it off a little bit, right? Verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his death. So right there, stop. We know the issue is that he really died. And so Jesus clearly is using a euphemism. But they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. Verse 14, so Jesus then said to them plainly, hey, dunderheads, Lazarus is dead. <laughs> I added the dunderheads. I, I would be included in that. I wouldn't get it either. He says, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Jesus was glad that he had died so that he may raise him and give glory to the Father, and that by doing so, others may believe. But so notice the euphemism. You can see in the context that Lazarus is really dead. Do we have anything in the context in this text here in Genesis chapter 3 that would show us that the eating is anything other than literal? No. In fact, what we're going to find is that there's a mention of fruit. There's a mention of giving the same fruit to the husband. There's a mention of other food, right? So all of the context tells us this is not a euphemism. This, in fact, is talking about literal eating. Yes, Brian. On hundreds of occasions, I will have read or heard something, and then I run it by Bob, and he ends up saying, is that what the Bible said? And I end up saying, no. (laughs) And he says, well, then don't don't believe it don't right. go by what the scripture says and a question yeah. i have yeah. is that i think's interesting is often overlooked i believe god said don't even touch it okay he not yes. not only says don't eat it but he says don't even touch it and sure. rick warren apparently has inserted three female pastors into his church a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So now there's a bunch of debate on whether women, again, should, you know, be, be pastors of churches. Right. And some pastors point back, and, and good pastors, I may say, yeah. point back to this, that do you see a connection between that where God says that, or, or I, I believe it was Paul, women shouldn't uh, 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 
pastor. Yeah, in First Timothy two. Yeah, First Timothy two. Yep. And and the it was the, the woman is the one that was originally deceived. deceived. Do you see a connection? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yep. So there is Adam is ultimately responsible. You see a headship. Because when, for example, we get to Romans 5, who's ultimately responsible for the sin? Adam is. So Adam hung his wife out to dry by, by letting her do that, and he is ultimately responsible. But Paul's point in 1 Timothy 2 is she was the first to be deceived. And there really is an order within humanity where there's a covering of the male and the female. There's a complementarian relationship between the two. But in 1 Timothy 2, Paul could not be clear that women are not to exercise authority over a man or be an elder in the church. And so, yeah, for those who are doing it like Rick Warren, they simply don't like what the Bible says, and therefore they go their own way. And there's really no wiggle room in that 1 Timothy 2. Now, there's a lot of room for women. I believe women can be deaconesses. And we've um, some years ago, we had some people that we had to do church discipline ultimately on who were trying to claim that women could not pass out, for example, the elements of communion. And so I just said, well, can you show me in the Bible where women are prohibited by the apostles or Jesus Christ from passing out elements for communion? Well, no, we can't do that. Well, then I won't listen to it because we're not going to falsely bind people to what they're not bound to in Scripture. But where Scripture speaks and they are bound morally, then we're going to say, no, women cannot be an elder nor exercise authority in that way over the church. Why? Because the apostle who speaks for Jesus Christ said so. And so Rick, we're either going to go with Rick Warren and his pastoral staff or we're going with the Apostle Paul. It's one or the other. I'm going with Paul, <laughs> the Apostle. So that's the issue. So absolutely. Um, now, let's keep going here for the sake of time. This is a very interesting study when we get into the gospel issues because I think it becomes very clear how beautiful the gospel is and how great salvation is when, in fact, it's by faith alone and not genetic. But here, let's look at further the problems in the garden. Genesis 3, 4 through 6 It says, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Stop there. Notice this is the second lie, trying to bring disrepute upon God's word. God says you'll die. There's going to be separation between you and God. The serpent says, no, you won't die. You're either going to go with the serpent or you're going to go with God. Either going to go with Rick Warren or you're going to go with the Apostle Paul who speaks for God. It's those kind of clarity issues, isn't it? So, Keep going. It says, you surely will not die. It says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. That's the temptation. You're going to be your own lawgiver, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Now, let me give you some contextual clues in this text that shows us eating is the issue, not a physical relationship with the serpent. First of all, notice the term food. Does everyone see the term food right there? Makal. Makal, it's food. So what does food have to do with a sexual relationship? It doesn't have anything to do with it. It's about eating. That's the issue. Notice the term fruit, puri, in in the Hebrew. Puri, where's the term fruit? Right here. There, it's fruit. That's the issue. It's about eating. It's not about having sexual relations. It's about eating. And notice, it says she gave also to her husband, and he ate. Well, that doesn't make any sense if the issue is a sexual union between the serpent and Eve. It doesn't make any sense contextually. So certainly, what do we know? 
Eating is not a euphemism for having a physical relationship. We know that. There's no, there's no clue in the text at all that would show us that. But every clue that we have is about literal eating or non-eating of the forbidden fruit. Does everyone see that? So that's the issue. That's what Eve's sin was. Eve's sin was that she took, and Adam, again, was the one ultimately responsible. He ate too. And they, therefore, disobeyed God because they wanted to be like him. They wanted to be lawgivers, knowing the difference between good and evil for themselves. And so they were usurping God and denying his word. Now, let's look at Adam and Eve's sin confirmed. Genesis 3, 11 through 13, it says, and he said, now remember, this is where God begins with the man, and he calls him into account for what he did. Then he goes after the woman, and then he goes after the serpent. Remember the old joke? The serpent didn't have a leg to stand on, right? All right, so he begins with the man. It says, and he said, this is God in the garden with man. Remember, the man says that he's naked, right? It says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Notice the issue is eating again. Notice the issue. So here, the man is being reminded that he had a command not to eat. So, of course, the issue is eating, not having a sexual relationship between Eve and the serpent. Because Adam ultimately was responsible. So if Adam is ultimately on the hook, how is that then a physical relationship between Eve and the serpent? Do you see, it doesn't make any sense. So notice in verse 12, then it says, the man said, the woman, now he's blaming the woman, the woman whom you gave to be with me, oh, it's that helper's problem. She gave me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. So again, he ate, that was the issue. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, let me just clue you in on a big debate with the people who purport the serpent seed teaching. Does everyone see where Eve says, the serpent deceived me? In the King James Version, and all of the heretics in the serpent seed, that's a tongue twister for me, doctrine, they use the King James Version, and typically they're KGV only, a lot of them. But they use the term in the King James Version, beguiled, for the term deceived. So it'll say, literally, the King James Version says, And the Lord God said unto the woman, this is Genesis 3.13, King James Version, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Well, they take the term for deceived, beguiled, in the King James Version, and they claim that means seduced. The term here in Hebrew is nasah. Nassau. Okay, so what I'm going to show you, though, is Nassau is used 14 times in the Old Testament, and never once does it mean to be sexually seduced. It always means to be deceived. In fact, five of the 14 usages are used in texts where, do you remember Sennacherib, the Assyrian king? He surrounds Jerusalem. He's going to wipe him out. And Hezekiah has that gulping moment, like, he's got to trust God is going to deliver him. So Hezekiah is either going to trust God or he's going to trust in foreign alliances. Well, the king of Assyria sends a message, says, don't be deceived, Nassau, that the God of Israel can deliver you. Well, of course, the God of Israel did deliver them and killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. In one night. That's the power of the Holy One of Israel. But the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, was boasting, don't be deceived. He uses the term Nassau five times in the Hebrew text. Well, would that mean to Hezekiah, don't be sexually seduced? 
well, it wouldn't make any sense. And I'm giving you five of the 14 usages, but all of them, I looked at every one of them, not one of them can be used for being sexually seduced, but rather being mentally deceived by some craft, craftiness or trickery. Okay, so again, the false teachers, just like the serpent, don't have a leg to stand on. The term deceived means just that. She was deceived because she believed Satan's word over God's. And therefore, she ate and her husband as well. Okay, that's what the issue really is. Now, I want to talk about corporate solidarity. Here's where you're going to start learning the Bible and the gospel even better. That's my prayer. I want to look at Genesis 3.15. Again, the serpent seed proponents distort this, and they try to claim the big battle between the serpent's lineage and Christ's lineage is all about genetics in your DNA. I'm going to show you that that is not the issue. But let's listen to Genesis 3.15. Here is the curse now upon the serpent in the garden by God. So God says to the serpent, therefore Satan, he says, I will put enmity, remember that's warfare, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now notice there's going to be a warfare between the seed of the serpent and there's in the seed of the woman. There's going to be a warfare. The term there for seed is Zerah. And I'll have that on the screen here in just a moment. What you're going to learn from Zerah is Zerah is what's called a collective noun in Hebrew. We all know what a collective noun is. You use it all the time. If you say, hey, I saw 10 deer yesterday, you use deer. But if you saw one deer, you say deer. Okay, sometimes I don't like that. I'll say 10 deers because I'm trying to change the English, English language subtly. One, man, one man's protest against the English language. I want a plural there. <laughs> but anyway, you, you get my point. Deer is plural deer or singular deer. That's a collective noun. Zerah is the same way. But it teaches an important concept called the one and the many. And you're going to learn that here. But the one thing that I want you to see in this text is notice the emphasis on the woman's seed is one man. Notice in the box, the he... The he, now get a load of this. When I learn Hebrew, the pronoun for he is who, and the pronoun for a man for he is she. So if you say she in Hebrew, it means he, and if you say he, you mean who. I'm sorry, if you say who, you mean he. Anyway, I'm all confused. It's like a who's on first with Abbott and Costello. You're all confused. You're walking out of there. It's just all, but anyway, this is who in Hebrew, which is he, <laughs> Okay. So why is that important? Because it's a third-person masculine singular pronoun. The emphasis is on the one. There's going to be one who comes and crushes the serpent. Because notice, it's going to be a fatal wound to his head. Yes, it's metaphoric, but it, it also points to something that literally happens. That Christ devastates the work of the serpent through his work on the cross and his finished work in total. Okay? So the emphasis here is on the one, and I'll show you why that's important. So here's what we have with Zerah, the term for seed. That's the term in Hebrew. I want you to think conceptually on the screen. Notice you have the one, the Messiah, but you have the many that are connected to the Messiah. And you can't divorce one from the other. The many, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, are pregnant. They're going to have the one. He comes from their lineage, but the one is going to provide salvation for the many. And because the one is perfect, the many will be perfect. Even though the many sinned, the one will atone for them. And so the one and the many, they can't be divorced. So what is Zerah? It's the one and the many. 
It's the Messiah and it's his people. Are you with me? And how are we with him? Is it because of our genetics? It's by faith alone. That's what we're going to learn. It's by faith alone. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you three texts, and I want to prove to you that the one and the many concept is taught in the Scriptures, that I'm not just reading into this idea, into Zerah. First, turn your Bibles to Genesis 15, 5. Remember the covenant with Abraham that God gave. Genesis 15, 5. I want to prove to you that the seed involves the many. So please turn your Bibles to Genesis 15, 5. Then after that, I'll prove to you that the one is sometimes in view. So Genesis 15, 5. Now remember, this is the unilateral, unconditional Abrahamic covenant. It is the covenant that is now ratified and brought to fruition really in the new covenant. Uh, Remember, Jesus says, Abraham believed. He saw from afar my day and was glad. Genesis, or excuse me, John 8, 56, right? Remember, before Abraham was, I am. So this is a unilateral covenant that God made with Abraham. It says, Genesis 15, 5, God took him outside, that's he, he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And this is God speaking to Abraham. And he said to him, so shall your seed be, your offspring, your descendants. The term is Zerah. So whether you have descendants or offspring, whatever you have, the term in Hebrew is Zerah, the same term that we have in Genesis 3.15. But notice the reference to the multiple. Your seed is going to be like the stars in the heavens. There's going to be the many. Well, how does one become one of the seed of Abraham? I'm going to prove to you conclusively from the New Testament it's by faith alone in Christ alone. That's how you become one of the many. But does everyone see there, there Zerah, the emphasis is on the many? Well, here in Genesis 3.15, the emphasis was on the one. Why can you have the one and then sometimes the many? Because of this idea. The one is going to provide salvation for the many. The many are going to bring through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jude, and David, genetically, they're going to bring about the one. They're tied together. But ultimately, the many are belong to Jesus Christ by faith alone. So the connection between the one and the many ultimately isn't genetic. There's just one lineage that brings Messiah about. But ultimately, the, the lineage issue isn't one of genetics, but of faith alone. You, because of your trust in Jesus Christ are one of the Zerah. You're one of the the seed. The seed of the Messiah, the seed of the woman. Okay? So now let's look at the one. Galatians 3.16. Very important that we see this. Turn your Bibles to Galatians 3.16. I'm going to show you that, indeed, Paul understood Genesis 3.15 as referring ultimately to the one. Genesis 3... Excuse me, Galatians 3.16. Turn your Bibles there. By the way, as you're turning to Galatians 3.16, this is a passage that was used by Peter Enns in that book I had mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Inspiration and Incarnation. He tried to use this to try to say, hey, the apostles played fast and loose with the Old Testament. That if Paul uses the seed promise to refer to one, that is Christ, he's taking it out of context. I'm going to show you that's not true. Galatians 3.16, Paul says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. There's sperma in the, in the Greek but it's the same as Zerah in the Hebrew. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. Now, we just read Genesis 15, 5. And in Genesis 15, 5, it certainly does talk about the many. 
So people like Peter Enns, not understanding Paul's point here in Galatians 3.16, say Paul was playing fast and loose with the Old Testament interpretation. He just did anything he wanted with the Old Testament text. I wrote a rebuttal to that saying, oh, that's not true. What Paul understood is the original promise in Genesis 3.15, look on the screen, was a third-person masculine singular pronoun, he. He is going to crush the serpent's head. The emphasis is on the one, and Paul knew it, that it was the Christ who was the son of promise who brings about all of the promises of God. And the only way that any of us as the many can be saved is through faith in him. So that's Paul's point. Paul's point is emphasis in Galatians 3.16 is on the one. So do you see in some texts the emphasis is on the many and the other it's on the one? Well, let's see a passage where it's put together, the one and the many. Oh, that'll be fun. Let's turn our Bibles to Romans 5.19. Romans 5.19, we'll see it all come together here. Romans 5.19. By the way, Romans 5.12 through 19 well, actually, Romans 5, 12 through 21 is one of the most important passages for a Christian worldview. Romans 5, 19. You're going to see the relationship between the one and the many. Romans 5, 19. Notice it says, Paul's talking about Adam's sin. And he says, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. So do you notice the concept of corporate solidarity? By the one transgression of Adam, all of us were made sinners. It was credited to us. It was imputed to us. We became sinners. When he sinned, we were regarded as sinners. And you might say, well, that wasn't, that's not fair. I wasn't there in the garden. But praise be to God that God does work via imputation because Jesus Christ and his perfection was something that I could not do. So notice the second part of the text. It was the obedience of the one made the many, that means the elect, the believer, righteous. There's the connection between the one and the many. Yes, Scott. So the imputation of, uh, of Adam's sin to everyone is... Some say that's unfair, but it is in reality God's mercy. Absolutely, because... Because he wouldn't be able to impute his Christ's righteousness, righteousness right. otherwise. So the only question when you're, issuing, you're talking about the fairness issue is just ask yourself the question, have I sinned in my own life? Yes, I know I have. Well, that means I'm with Adam in solidarity. And therefore, if God did not impute Christ's righteousness to me, I would not be able to stand before God. Yes, Bob. Some people have disputed whether it's uh, legal imputation only. Yes. Or it's actual sin nature. Yeah. And some people, perfectionists, say there's no sin nature. Right. Now, the que- I, you know, I've always said it's both. It's both, right. Because in Adam all die. Yeah. Is that only legal, or right. is it that we are born dead in sin? Yeah, amen. Is it both, or is it just one or the other? Yeah, and I think you're right. I think it is both. Now, what's interesting about that is, as far as the curse, um, the introdu- introduction by God of entropy, the law of decay in the universe, we don't know exactly physically how that happened. How is it that, for example, even after the fall, you have Enoch and some of these men who live so long? 
and now we don't live so long. I mean, there's something genetically going on, but I don't know what that is, and it's not revealed. But what I do know is what Paul's point is, is in Romans 5, is that when Adam sinned, that was accrued to my account. But I acted it out anyway, and so I'm guilty, and so did you. So praise be to God, through the one man's righteousness, Jesus Christ, his righteousness can be credited to my account. And that was exactly what happened in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's Paul's point in Romans 4. The term in, in the Septuagint in Genesis 15, 6 is logizomai. Abraham's faith in the Lord's promises, the future coming of the Messiah, led to the righteousness of God being credited to his account. That's what differentiates us from the Roman Catholics. The Roman Catholics say a righteousness dwells up from within as we do our works and perfect ourselves through all. And that's my flow chart I showed you last week, and we'll get into that de- those details later. But what the Bible teaches is something completely different than that. That a righteousness is completely outside of us. It's from God alone. It doesn't dwell up from within us. It's a righteousness that is credited to us purely as a gift. That's the idea. And so that's how we become one of the many connected to the one. Okay, so the genetic issue as to how genetically we are different because of the fall, that's never revealed and we don't know. But what we do know is how can we be connected to the Messiah? By faith. Can so, you, and I'll show you that. Yes, can you right. differentiate between the Catholicism view on that and Arminianism? Yeah, um, you know, Arminians would hold to the idea that we don't have a righteousness that wells up from within. The Catholics do. Now, the issue with Arminianism is the initial justification. Do, do humans have the ability to come to faith in Jesus Christ or are we completely unable to do it as I would maintain from the scriptures? So what the Arminians believe is something called prevenient grace. Prevenient means first. And so they believe that this grace is given to every single human being. And therefore, the reason why you came to faith is because you chose it by your human effort. But the reason an unbeliever did not come to faith is because they chose not to. But God provided the grace, prevenient grace, to you both, both to you who believe and to them who don't believe. The problem with that is the Bible doesn't teach prevenient grace. Do you remember in um, Matthew 13, he's, Jesus is teaching the disciples in parables, then he takes them away, and he tells them plainly what the parables mean. And the disciples ask, how is it that you tell us plainly, but you leave them with just parables? And he says, because to you it has been given, literally ditto me, it's been granted or, or given the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. Well, if prevenient grace were true... God has to give it equally to all people. So what that shows is there is a distinction between the seed of the, the Messiah, the elect, and the seed of the serpent, the non-elect. To us, it's been given the knowledge. That's why John six forty four, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. But remember, uh, in verse 37 of John 6, all those who come unto the Messiah are not going to be cast out. So the point is, how do any of us come to the Messiah? Well, it's by the Lord's drawing. But if all were drawn, then all would be saved. Why? Because Christ doesn't cast anyone out. Do you see what I'm saying? So if God draws all people, as the Armenians claim, then you'd have universalism. 
Well, do we have universalism taught in the scriptures? Well, no. In fact, the vast majority end up heading to perdition, according to Matthew 7. So Arminianism, that's the difference. Arminianism is you can come to faith on your own, by your own power, whereas you can't. Yes, go ahead. The, the servant seed doctrine has so many bad implications in so many different areas. Yes. Um, if, if you believe that the Satan's seed was genetic, and you believe that it still exists to this day, then you have to believe that Satan's seed somehow survived the flood. Yes. And what I find is that people, proponents of the Satan's seed doctrine, they, they maintain that the flood was not global. It was not worldwide. It was a localized flood. Oh, wow. That's problematic, too. Yes. But, I mean, think, think about it now. The, the stated purpose of the flood was to wipe out evil. That's right. So if, the, if Satan's seed made it through the flood, well, then God failed miserably. Yeah. <laughs> There's just so many bad implications in, in well the Satan's seed doctrine. Yeah, amen. Thank you, Dana. Very good. Yeah, so well, um, for the sake of time, let me keep going. From whom did Cain come? Let's ask that, ourselves that question. Genesis 4.1, it says, now the man, that's Adam. By the way, in the Hebrew, this is Adam. This is Adam. Okay, so the man had relations with his wife, that's Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have beg- I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Notice the man, Adam, had relations with his wife. There's the physical union. It wasn't between the serpent and Eve. It was between Adam and Eve. So that's what the clear teaching of Scripture says. And so those who disagree with that are disagreeing with what the Scriptures teach. We have to go with what the Scriptures teach, not what we want them to say, not what we wish them to say. And I don't know why anyone would wish for there to be a union between the serpent and Eve. It seems strange to me. But it's just not what the text says. Okay, does everyone see that? It's very straightforward. Again, much mischief can be done if one claims that Cain is a direct result of a relationship between the serpent and Eve. Then you can start to claim, well, you know what, there's a race of genetically deficient people, and maybe it's this racial group I don't like. Or as William Branham said, it's the scientists that he didn't like. Or as others said in the Christian identity movement, it's the Jews, or it's the blacks, or whomever. No, that's not the issue. So what we need to know is that our genetics don't matter Christ does. That's what we have to know. And I'm going to show you a passage that we've looked at in our studies in Acts already. Acts 13, 22 through 23. Very important. This is Paul preaching at Antioch, Pisidia. Notice here it says after, this is, by the way, remember Paul is giving the history of Israel and he comes to the selection of David and the rejection of Saul. Listen to this. It's very important for our Christian worldview. It says after he had removed him, Paul's talking about Saul, He raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, after my heart, excuse me, who will do all my will. So stop there. That's 1 Samuel 13, 14. Does everyone see that in all bold? You also see the same promise again in Psalm 89, 20. Okay. Well, notice in verse 23, it says, from the descendants, there's the term seed. From the seed of this man, that would be David, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. So notice, from the descendants of this man, David, came the Messiah. 
Christ's genetics matter because it was promised he was going to come from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah, from David. How do I know that? Because he says, Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, according to promise. Now, it was promised, therefore, where the Messiah would come from, but show me one scripture verse, one passage, one in the Bible that teaches only certain genetic groups are the children of promise. Show me one. There isn't one. Because God saves from both the Jew and the Gentile, the slave and the free, the male and the female, all are one in Christ Jesus. That's what he does. So here we see that Christ's genetics matter, but ours don't. That's the issue. All right. Now, remember when it says that it was according to promise, the Messiah was going to be a descendant of David. Remember, he's a descendant of David. We see this in Isaiah 11, where David is both the source of David, he's the root of David, but he's also a descendant of David. Remember you see in Isaiah, so Isaiah, think about this conceptually. Isaiah 11, 1, the son of Jesse or the seed of Jesse, it talks about him being this Shoresh, or excuse me, Koter. He's a descendant of David. But when you get to Isaiah eleven ten, he's the root of David. He's the source of David. And we see the same thing. By the way, just jot this down for the sake of time. Don't turn to it. Try to get my pointer off. Revelation twenty two sixteen. What does Jesus say of himself? He says, I am the root and the descendant of David. So he's the source of David, but he's a descendant of David. How can that be? Because he's truly God and truly man. As God, he's the source of David. He's David's creator. But as a man, he's also a descendant of David. Okay, so that's who Christ is, and that's why his genetics matter, because it was a promise. But it's not promised that just only certain genetic groups are going to come to faith. In fact, it's promised the opposite. Remember in Genesis 12, 3, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Abraham is going to be a blessing to all the nations because God was going to draw his elect from all of them. So that's why we see in Romans 2, 20 through 29, who is truly a Jew, Paul says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Stop there. How could Paul be any clearer that your genetic lineage doesn't matter? Being an outward Jew doesn't matter at all. Not a bit. So what does matter? He says, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Verse 29, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Why is a Jew who is one inwardly? Well, because they're brought to faith by the Holy Spirit. That's what the circumcision of the heart is. Remember 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the spirit. God is the one who promised that he would circumcise the heart by regeneration in Deuteronomy 30 and all the way through the scriptures. Okay, so what matters is if you've been regenerated, you come to faith in Jesus Christ, then you're a Jew who is one inwardly. And you might be one who's a Gentile. And so what this says is, think about this. I remember I was in Israel, the bus driver who was leading our tour group, he bragged about being a descendant of David. And I thought to myself, how ironic, this man who lives in Israel, let's just say he's right. Let's say he knows he's a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David. He doesn't believe in Jesus. He has no connection to the Messiah. But I know a guy named Ed in Basswood, Minnesota, who believes, who is from Swedish background, and he's in like Flynn. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter our genetics. Our genetics don't matter. And those who teach the seed serpent doctrine are teaching a damnable heresy by saying that it does matter. The scriptures say your genetic makeup doesn't matter. 
the serpent seed doctrine proponents say it does matter. What are you going to go with? For me, in my house, hopefully the rest of my house, we're going to go with what the scriptures say. Let me give you another passage. I'm sorry, I thought I saw a hand somewhere. Maybe I didn't. Oh, Eric, yes. I didn't want to get off on a tangent, but um, I was reading that, you know, with the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, yes. the Jewish people, they do not have good... Uh, good um, that's what I understood, you know, too. But they, they don't have the genealogical records. So no one, there's no one in the world that can prove that they are the descendant of David. Right, that's what and I so was so Jesus Christ is the last person in this world, in this creation, that can prove that he's a descendant of David. That's right. And you know what? I'm of that assumption as well. And I did not query or challenge the bus driver. So I didn't say, well, how do you know that? But um, I just took it for face value. Maybe they have some really good family records or something, a great photo journal or something. I don't know. But yeah, thanks, Eric. That's a very good point. So faith saves not genetics. Notice here what Paul's point is in Romans 4, 13 through 14. And we'll end here. Paul says, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants, there's the seed, that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through what? The righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. How are you a promised member of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah with the Messiah? It's by faith. It's not by your genetics. Our genetics don't matter. Dear ones, those who teach the serpent seed doctrine say the genetics matter. Today, BLM says your genetics matter. The professor at the university says your genetics matter. The Antifa rioters are saying your genetics matter. A lot of people in politics are saying your genetics matter. Jesus Christ says your genetics don't matter. That what matters is that you came to faith in Jesus Christ. And as soon as you did, the righteousness of Christ was clothed to your account forevermore. And it can never be lost. That's something that you and I should take comfort from. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that salvation is not by our genetic lineage, but that we're sons and daughters of you through faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. We do thank you for sending him that he would live the perfect life that we could not, that he would die a substitutionary death, that you'd prove all of his claims by raising him from the dead, that he ascended into the heavens and he's coming again. Lord, we thank you for these things. We thank you for your promises. I do pray that any who are confused about the genetic lineage of the serpent seed doctrines, that they would see the clarity of Scripture. I pray that this would be a comfort to those who may think that their salvation is in jeopardy, that they would know that it's not through faith in Christ. I pray for Bob as he's teaching us in 1 Corinthians. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand, help us to live out the doctrines that he teaches, help us to be not just hearers but doers of the word. We pray that you'd bless him and keep him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, thanks, everyone. Thank you. That was... uh...